This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. Ah, uh, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. <laughs> oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? <laughs> Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. Hey, my labial lovers, welcome back to the lounge. Today I've got Katrin here to chat with me about a topic I've been wanting to cover for ages, and that is vaginismus. So I'm sure we're going to meander around and cover all sorts of facets of this condition, but we're definitely going to hit upon, at the very least, some of the kind of common causes or cofactors involved in why people suffer from vaginismus, the ways that we can start taking steps to healing this and freeing ourselves from it. Um, and I don't, I'd love to, yeah, go into some of Katrin's, I mean, Katrin, oh my God. <laughs> And I'd love to go into some of Katrin's personal experience with this condition and uh, the ways that she works with clients now to support them with it because it's quite a quite a complex and nuanced thing. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, experience with it, but I do work with clients with it and from my research and what I can kind of gather. Yeah, it's not just a simple quick fix. There's, it's not just a physical thing, you know. Um, it really benefits from a holistic approach and there's a lot of misconceptions or misunderstandings about it that I hope we can bust today. So I'll just give you a rundown on my darling guest today. So the parts of you who desire a life based in liberation, love and leadership can find a home in Katrin's world. As a sexual liberation mentor who has overcome painful sex and continues to support women in releasing the protective body response of vaginismus, Katrin has a deep understanding of how survival strategies of the mind and subtle protective mechanisms of the body can sneakily keep you from feeling like the talented artist that you are. Katrin believes that your power is born out of your deepest pain and that the liberated and in love woman within you already has all the answers to guide you in your personal reclamation in the realms of sex, love, relationships, and entrepreneurship. She's here to love you as you rediscover your unique signature of play, pleasure, and purpose. She gently calls you into your creative zone of genius and lifts you up as you bravely build your legacy from that place of aliveness and erotic flow. 
Beautiful. And you can find, I'll pop, I'll pop Katrin's, um, links and stuff in the show notes, but you can find her life's work on her website, katrinwithlove.com and on Instagram, katrin.with.love and also vaginismus.sisters. So welcome, Katrin. Thank you so much for having me, Freya. Looking forward to the chat. So I guess it would make sense to start with a little bit about your story and your personal experience with vaginismus, because I imagine that suffering it yourself for a number of years is potentially why you got into working with clients to support them through this. Do you want to give us a little bit of your backstory? Absolutely. That's right. I never would have thought that I would one day be supporting humans in sexual freedom. Um, it's odd to think about it based on how I grew up in the world and how this was such a foreign topic for me in my childhood. Mm. Really, I grew up in a left-brained kind of way where logic was what made me valuable in my family. You know, it's those high performer, perfectionist tendencies that also came about. And I like starting with that because they have so much to do with our experience of not having found safety in the body in our emotional expression, in our sexual expression. And our eroticism has so much to do with the sense of freedom to be expressed in our aliveness, uh, sexually and otherwise. So that kind of foundation that I grew up with uh, led me to, at the age of 18 years old, being at in my partner's bed back when he still lived with his parents, laying there with the desire to have penetrative sex with him, the trust in him, the love of him, you know, at least all on a conscious level and desiring all of that fully in the moment, or at least I thought with my body reacting in, in reacting in a completely different way than I would have mm. expected. We were met with what felt like, you know, the great wall of China, a brick wall right between my legs where penetration was impossible. And when we tried to push just a little bit on that first attempt, there was no budging. It's like my body was saying no, and it was saying no firmly. With another one or two attempts, you know, we in our society often hear that the first time sex, and we don't even think about the yeah. difference between penetrative sex and other forms of sex. But in my mind at that time, like this is my losing virginity moment which yeah. I like to call now <laughs> our sexual debut uh, <laughs> rather than any loss of any sort. But mm. it was that next time or two attempting to connect with him in this way that uh, some penetration became possible with a whole bunch of pushing through. And it was excruciatingly painful. Oh. The most intense pain that I've experienced oh. and I don't wish upon anyone. Oh. My God. That was the start. That was the start of it all. <laughs> wow. So you were experiencing vaginismus before you'd even had penetrative sex. And so the first time you tried, it was already super painful. Fuck. <laughs> That's right. What's interesting about that is that we have this idea and, you know, we hear feedback from people that we may have had conversations about when it comes to their sexual experiences. And we hear that it's supposed to be wildly pleasurable. We see movie scenes, right, that paint that kind of picture. And because we never have had that piece of evidence register within our own system that it's actually a really beautiful, enjoyable mm. thing, there is just a part of us that doesn't believe this could ever be nice, right? 
considering it was so excruciatingly painful. It's a massive Mm. reality shift to go through Mm -hmm. to actually flip the script on that. Totally. And then, you know, especially if your first experience is quite unpleasant and painful and traumatic, that then sort of sets the precedent and there's this really vicious like cycle that starts to kind of sink its claws in and and really like set up shop um, because you don't have any evidence otherwise. And then you've got kind of the, yeah, the pain cycle playing out and kind of becoming more more solidified each time I imagine um so how long did you sort of struggle with painful sex and vaginismus and and did you end up discovering what the root because I think some people I've had clients who are like um yeah I'm a quote-unquote virgin I can't even get like you know my partner can't even get a finger in we can't have sex it's preventing me from you know having sex and I can't figure it out because I think a lot of people assume that vaginismus comes about from having you know crappy sex or negative experiences or uh, you know violations sexual trauma in the first place and so you know some people are really confused when they're experiencing it right off the bat when they can't even you know kind of cognitively understand why like as far as they're concerned nothing traumatic has happened nothing really should be getting in the way of this so how come it's you know how come it's happening when they haven't had any negative or like explicitly negative experiences that they're aware of to have kind of kick-started that defense mechanism in their body yeah I love how you put that that it's experiences that we're at least aware of and I think it really calls us into this deep Uh, exploration journey of what our life has looked like and what some of the contributing factors could have been to our body shutting down in this way. Mm. So to answer your question more specifically, from the very first time I tried to have penetrative sex to the time that I was having pain-free penetrative sex was six years, six year journey. Before that, though, there were some red flags, and I'd love to speak to them briefly because Mm. uh, quite often we might be able to see that it's coming, but we kind of convince ourselves that nothing is wrong, it's all good, and as soon as I have PIV sex for the first time, it's going to be great. And that happens Mm. quite often as well if we decide to save ourselves until marriage, and it's that Mm. amazing wedding day or or honeymoon experience that just gets filled with a lot of darkness and confusion. Yeah. Um, but my very first red flag was that I wasn't able to use a tampon. Okay. And I remember trying to insert a tampon back when I wanted to attend my friend's pool parties. And I would, first of all, I had very little instruction and guidance and sort of female led support with that. I felt a little bit more alone in it. And I just remember mm-hmm. trying to put a tampon up in my vagina. And again, that brick wall was there. And I kept throwing them out into the garbage. And <laughs> my profession yeah. itself was also frustrated <laughs> at the fact that I was wasting perfectly good tampons. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of one of the things that I started to think back first. But still, like you said, I didn't have, in my awareness, any big T trauma. And I set off to understand why is it that my body didn't feel safe Right? I didn't quite at the time connect it to safety, but now I know there is this um, unmet level of feeling safe to be vulnerable, 
safe mm-hmm. to be in connection with another human being, safe to be fully emotionally expressed or, you know, show vulnerability emotionally or physically. Mm-hmm. And penetrative sex as vagina owners is the most vulnerable thing we could do like on this planet, yeah. letting another human being inside of us, right? So it does yeah. tap back into that sense of safety and vulnerability. So here are a few of the main categories that I identified for myself that were contributing factors. One big one was the subconscious fear of the masculine. Mm. In my life, I had had experiences with my father, as one example, that were quite chaotic. And it meant I was walking on eggshells in the presence of a male figure that was otherwise supposed to be my first energetic imprint of a nourishing masculine presence. Mm. Since that was absent on many levels, and it was uh, filled with quite a bit of intense emotions, right? Anger, outbursts of some sort, I kept myself away from situations because I didn't feel safe. And though later I had a partner, uh, you know, that I trusted consciously, it was a part of me that felt like my guard was up simply because I didn't have the nourishing experience of the masculine. Mm-hmm. So that's just one category. And I'd love to dive deeper into it if, if you have follow-up yeah, questions. Well, there's, yeah, for sure, for sure. I think for now, like, Talk, talk us through your your reasons that you discovered and then definitely further on in the episode I've got some questions around around yeah expanding on that for sure yeah okay absolutely well another reason I identified a little bit down the line is that fear of pregnancy actually has a lot to do with mm-hmm. the vaginismus body response Wow. In itself, the physical mechanism of closing is the best form of contraception we could have to potentially yeah. getting pregnant. <laughs> and we see this quite often in our society. And of course, our sex education, as we're going to touch on, is very much fear-based. Pleasure is not part of the conversation. Don't get an STD. Don't get pregnant. One of the things that we get ingrained in our mind is that we need to do our very best to not have that happen too early when we're not ready and when it would be a source of shame on so many levels in our society. And so that must have also been one of the reasons that I was wary about having penetrative sex. And yes, I did. We did use a condom at the time. I was also on the birth control pill, which I got off of later for other reasons, but uh, that must have also been a reason that my body said no and wanted to close in protection. Totally. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's more. I mean, one other one has to do with the feminine. And I circle back to this because there is a sense of repression of our sensuality, of our full erotic expression, of our full emotional expression. And in my childhood, I observed my mother do a lot of amazing things for our family. But one of the things I didn't quite observe as much is that she took care of herself um, Mm. in a self-care kind of way, in a more sensual, feminine archetype energy kind of way. And what also imprinted for me in that is that, you know, I am meant to be strong, logical, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to put my head down in the books, get all the good grades, make my parents proud so also they could stay together. And I took on this high performer and alpha woman kind of personality. Mm. 
in that we close ourselves to receiving very often. I remember in dating situations, I would feel that, you know, I shouldn't accept for my bill to be paid. I've got to be the strong, independent woman who is going to take care of herself and do it all herself and prove her worth in this way. Penetrative sex in itself is a form as a vagina owner of receiving. And Mm. so when we close ourselves to receiving in one aspect of life, uh, we also have that reflect on the physical realm in our body. Totally. So that's another piece uh, of the yeah. depth of the emotional components. Yeah, yeah, totally. You just did such a beautiful job of articulating that and we'll definitely expand on some of the, yeah, the energetic and emotional kind of reasons behind why some people might have their body decide to just yeah, shut up shop like this. But I've just realized I haven't actually, I mean, I just assumed everyone listening to this would know what vaginismus was, but just in case, can we give them a little bit of a definition about what it actually is? Of course. In our society, it's bulked into the category of a sexual dysfunction. And I want to flip the script on that. I call it Mm. a protective body response. It's not a condition. It's not something we need to cure from or fix ourselves from. But essentially, vaginismus is the involuntary contraction of our pelvic floor muscles to the point of making penetration either impossible or or really painful. And that Mm -hmm. is at the anticipation of penetration or the actual attempt of penetration. So you touched on the cycle of pain and this vicious cycle that kind of takes us into a loop of the painful experience the anticipation of the painful experience, the bracing for the painful experience, and then again, the creation of it all together. And it's very similar to how our body protects ourselves from some other perceived threats. Like if someone was to throw sand in our face, right? We see the sand coming. We feel like, oh, shit, that's probably not good for my eyeballs. Let me close my eyelids Mm -hmm. to protect myself. Vaginismus is the exact same thing. Oh, that's such a good way of explaining it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the, the tighter you scrunch your eyes shut, the more protected they'll be from, from things trying to get in. So that's pretty much, yeah, exactly. I love that. It's, um, because also, you know, it's, it's, um, it's another example of a sphincter in the body, you know, like the pelvic floor muscles, the anus, the eyes, the mouth. These are all sphincters, these kind of circular um, rings of muscles that contract and dilate to open and close. And that's mm-hmm. just such an apt way of, yeah, it's a, that's a good comparison. Nice one. I've actually never heard that comparison before. Um, and it's not the only reason that people can have painful sex. Like I feel like I – um, there's, you know, there's vulvodynia, there's other conditions, but for the, for the sake of this episode, I really want to focus on vaginismus as that's in your wheelhouse. Um, but yeah, we'll say like, I've experienced a lot of painful sex in the past because of this sort of vicious pain cycle and this anticipation of pain and therefore contraction against it happening because I had a really bad few years of like recurrent thrush and painful Mm -hmm. sex because of the inflammation and the irritation. And then even once I didn't have thrush anymore and I'd kind of sorted out my gut and and healed from that, there was still quite a while where my body associated penetration with pain and therefore would contract to protect itself and brace for the pain. 
And then, of course, pain would happen because of that contraction. And so I, I, it wasn't full-blown vaginismus, but it was definitely that sort of similar response in the body trying to defend and protect myself. So, yeah, I'm sure this episode, even if you don't have vaginismus, a lot of what we talk about will apply for things like that, you know, painful sex and, and that bracing effect. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that example. And I love that you did the deep work to work through it to see all the contributing factors. Mm-hmm. I want to add to that as another perspective of understanding a protective body response is that really it's a survival mechanism as well. And if we think about fight, flight, or freeze, vaginismus mm-hmm. really is the freeze response. It's in a way the, oh, act dead. Let's get through this. Let's dissociate as well from the body. Um, And when we have proven to ourselves that certain survival mechanisms have served us in the past, kind of like having found safety in control of things in our life. So bringing in the control conversation here as well, we might come into this very vulnerable partnered experience uh, with that very same survival strategy, just to find that Finding safety and control is simply not one we can apply in the situation. Why? Because we're asked to find safety and surrender. Mm. And if anything, this entire journey of overcoming vaginismus, letting go of any other protective body response is finding safety in the unknown. It's finding safety and surrender and knowing that we're going to be okay no matter what, which you know, if there is any sort of hierarchy in life's lessons, I feel like finding safety and surrender is pretty high up there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so difficult for so many people, especially because of that, um, for women, uh, that boss bitch culture that you kind of talked about of like, you know, oh, anyway, I won't even go into that. All right. So I'd love to go into, I guess, the causes or the, the contributing factors. I know there's a lot of contention and there's mystery and misunderstanding around what actually causes this response in the body, whether it's psychosomatic, whether it's physical. Um, I know the medical community has, you know, one stance uh, versus maybe a more holistic approach. So do you want to kind of give us the rundown from your research and experience what the kind of more commonly accepted medical explanations for vaginismus are and then what you've found to actually be the most likely contributing factors maybe. Absolutely. So I'll start with just a bit of a story of what my medical uh, professional Mm. at the time gave me as a suggestion. And I remember after that very first confusing attempt at PIV sex, I went to my doctor, which of course in itself takes a lot of bravery. And I just want to applaud everyone listening who has taken that leap of faith to go seek support. Uh, I remember entering their office and I kind of brought this up eventually. (laughs) What I received as a response is, oh, well, you're probably just not ready yet. Your body is not ready and you should just wait. Hmm. Now, I didn't have it in me to really put my foot down after that response. It was disappointing. It was confusing. But uh, I went home. I tried another few times. I went back to the doctor's office a couple of weeks later. 
I knew that I was of an age. I knew that I had a sense of desire and readiness. That must not have been it, right? On some level, he was right because my body wasn't quite feeling safe yet to be ready for that kind of experience. But I knew that there's something more to it. And the second time I was told, why don't you just have a really relaxing evening, drink a glass of wine and see if that helps. This is me at 18 years old, under legal drinking age, getting that sort of recommendation from my my doctor. And that is not an uncommon one. One of the worst ones I've heard is, you know, do you even love your husband? Oh, that's the kind of question we get. Yeah. So I decided that I needed to see someone else, another specialist in the realm. I went to see a gynecologist. And unfortunately, at that time, I also didn't have the word vaginismus come up to the surface um, as some certainty and clarity as what may have been happening. Mm. I had a very an exam that went quite well, which was kind of surprising to me with a little bit of penetration. And I guess I felt this additional layer of safety possibly with her, this doctor being a woman, which may have been part of my, you know, contributing Mm. factors. But after that, we had a conversation with my partner's parents who had an opportunity to have him and I go to a sex therapist as part of their benefits. That was another leap of faith because this was a conversation that was quite uncomfortable. And it was only at the sex therapist's office that I was first told about dilators. Now, there were part of that experience, those few sessions that I had with her, that I also felt like I was probably not really ready for. I was asked certain questions about my masturbation habits, which I wasn't comfortable speaking about. There was so much shame also uh, baked into my story. And which, of course, is another contributing factor. But the nice thing that came out of that experience is that I was told about dilators and I was given about a two pager of instructions on how to use them. This was the path, according to what I was told so far. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the meantime, I had spent lots of late nights Googling vaginismus. I found certain blogs on the Internet. There really wasn't much information at the time. And I had also come across the were dilators, being these tools, either plastic or silicone of various sizes, kind of a tampon shape and moving up, um, that were meant to be practice tools for actually stretching my vaginal muscles. That's how they were explained to me. Mm. And practicing having something inside me for a, a prolonged period of time, so as to actually get used to penetration. And mm. I thought that's what I needed to do. That is going to be my path. I got my hands on dilators. That's a whole other story because my parents (laughs) were involved in that, believe it or not. They literally went to a sex store, talked to a sex store clerk, and brought me this gray bag with a little pink heart on it of dilators. Oh, mom and dad. (laughs) Good on them. Wild, right? That's not the typical story, but I'm very grateful. (laughs) And uh, I started using them, but it felt like, trigger warning here, I'm about to use the R word. I felt like I was raping myself Mm. because I was going into that with the very same mindset of just push through, grit your teeth. You have to push through the pain, but eventually it's going to get better. And that was only Mm. sending me deeper into the cycle of pain, which is exactly the opposite of what I needed to do at that stage. Yeah. So I caused myself a lot of unnecessary pain. I put the dilators in the closet multiple times over to gather dust 
And I somehow found my footing with understanding a little bit more about the emotional and erotic components that were necessary for this journey. Because the physical pillar is the last one, as I explain it today, there's so much more groundwork to do before we ever touch dilators to use internally. Yeah, amazing. Oh, well, just before we go into the kind of step-by-step approach, I'd love to do the segment Get Pregnant and Die. Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have a story for us about your sex education that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah. Now, from this conversation, you probably already gathered that my parents <laughs> were somewhat of a safe space to wow. have these conversations with. And I'm, mm-hmm. again, so grateful. My sex education did exist on some level from my dad. Wow. I remember... And this is a whole other topic for conversation because I feel like I got the sex education too early in life and also from certain facets that missed to explain the bigger picture. But I remember being uh, probably seven or eight years old because I still lived in Bulgaria at that time before we immigrated. My sister was three years older than me. So that may be why my dad was inspired to have Mm. this conversation with the both of us. Right. But I was in our childhood room and he started explaining something about how kids are made and how men and women go through this experience of inserting one body part in another body part. And he was kind of explaining how the penis and vagina work in quite a lot of detail. You know what I mean? (laughs) And (laughs) oddly, I was... I must have gotten fascinated with this to the point of actually drawing this out in one of my English classes at that time. And I drew two people with a penis sticking out of the man into the woman during recess or something or break time at this English class, which was another huge imprint of shame when my teacher brought this drawing to my parents and said, look at what your daughter is doing. Oh, God. So this was part of what leads me to believe that my sex education, um, though it had a lot of great intentions, got registered at a time when it didn't actually uh, have a more positive impact. And the other facet of this is that I received it mostly from my father. Hmm. In the way that he explained it, and what I remember maybe from the years after that initial conversation is that he approached the sexual experience very much from the masculine lens that Mm. a husband or a boyfriend or a man one day is going to require for this to be part of your life in order for the relationship to be able to go smoothly. Oof, God. So what registers is I need to be a provider of my body. I need to give this to a man rather than pleasure is for both parties. This is fun. This is something you're going to love and enjoy doing for you rather than for a man. Mm. And that was probably another piece of the resistance there, the resentment around uh, the masculine in general. 
Totally. Oh my God. It's really, I mean, it sucks you had to go through this to get to this point, but it's really cool and amazing, like hearing you articulate this and, and just so like clearly able to reflect on these different like pivotal moments in your formative years and be like, yeah, able to kind of connect the dots. Like it's quite fascinating. I'm sorry that that was your experience, but I mean, it's, yeah, you're, you're obviously in the right line of work now, just very, very, um, clearly able to, yeah, reflect on moments in, in the past and notice how they played a role. And yeah, I can imagine just that, oh, that absolute like shame of like the teacher you know, finding this picture, showing your parents, there would have been this like energy around that because of course the teacher would have been thinking, oh, what's going on in the home? Has she seen porn? Has she been sexually abused? Has she seen her parents having sex? Why is she drawing this stuff? And then your parents probably were like horrified and like defensive and trying to make sure the teacher understood that none of that was going on. And you would have just been like, you know, caught in the crosshairs just going, or the crossfire, sorry. And just, yeah, anyway, those sorts of experiences when we're so young and we don't fully understand and have the context or the tools are so damaging. Like we're so fucking sensitive that like, yeah, we're just sponges for that. And we might not understand why all of these weird, you know, feelings and tones of voice and energies, you know, that we're detecting are happening. But we know, we know innately that something's wrong and so of course we just sort of like store that away and now we associate that with (laughs) oh god anyway so wow thank you for sharing that That that's really really interesting get pregnant and die actually that was very on brand um yeah often people have very similar answers to that question I've almost thought about like getting rid of that segment because I've been doing the podcast for two years now and you know for the most part people like well barely had a sex ed it was crap blah 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 you know like we've all got a pretty similar experience but that was yeah quite a unique story um okay so let's chat a bit about the pillars that you mentioned in regards to an approach to healing the underlying contributing factors to vaginismus where would you start with someone that you're working with and what do we kind of need to consider and begin to work through and in what order Hey, babe towns. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now back to the episode. Sure thing. There are three of them in the way that I've uh, created the structure. And the first is emotional. I like calling it emotional processing these days. I've started to break up from the word healing a bit because I really don't think there's anything to fix or change. Mm -hmm. The the word healing did serve me at a particular point in time. So emotional processing. Then the erotic pillar. And this is really all about finding and embracing our authentic sexual selves. How is it that we are wired to be expressed in the bedroom and outside of it, right? How is it that we feel safe 
and excited in an erotic context because we see very largely only one erotic language in our media and there are quite a few more. The third Mm. pillar is the physical and we only get there when the physical component of an effective and pleasant penetrative practice can actually kind of serve as the check boxes that we get to see that everything we've done so far is actually fruitful and it has this visible impact of relaxation and pleasure potential for ourselves and our bodies. Now, those are the, the three pillars. And inside of the first one, and really something that is pervasive to all three, is something we really have to start with in order for any of the other things that we do to be effective. And I see this as a nervous system reset. Hmm. We need to be able to downregulate our nervous system to actually get out of the freeze response find safety in our capacity to feel and in our capacity to feel in a way that doesn't send us into a a tailspin and doesn't uh, have our nervous system go out of whack on some level, right? So we're activating the parasympathetic nervous system and we're helping ourselves get out of freeze. If we start using a dilator and we haven't done this practice, or if we start talking about shame and we haven't downregulated our nervous system, it's very likely that we're going to do more damage than good. Now, as to the how, of course, there's a lot of modalities, but I love speaking about this particular one that's called tension and trauma releasing exercises, TRE. And um, this is such an amazing way to downregulate the nervous system to release physical tension and emotional energy from the inside out. But also it's an amazing practice for finding surrender in a way of communicating with the wisdom of the body and creating a healthy relationship with our body. So I won't speak too much on that because there's a whole other three pillars, but TRE is really one of the things that I discovered about two and a half years ago that I bring into all of my work. Mm -hmm. After that, right, the emotional, I typically have the emotional exploration of some of the potential contributing factors for us happen at the same time as the very first seeds being planted of the physical layer. Because physically, we need to get into the habit of pelvic floor relaxation exercises, create the mind to body connection with our vulva, our vagina, start to create a healthy relationship with her, know how to have the full range of motion between a slight contraction and a full relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles. And in general, release a lot of the stress and tension that we hold in other parts of the body largely for vaginismus sisters, the shoulders, the neck, the jaw, oftentimes the quads and hamstrings might be super tight pulling at the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are some of the foundational pieces to pelvic floor relaxation exercises while diving into the emotional bits. Mm -hmm. Of course, with the emotional, it's it's a self-love journey. It's all about acceptance of our past, forgiveness to a certain degree, though I don't believe we have to forgive absolutely everyone in our lives, uh, but we have to forgive ourselves to the deepest possible level. Mm -hmm. And from there, we start moving into some of the playful aspects with the erotic components. So Miss Jaya uh, has created the system of the erotic blueprints. I really like educating on that and helping people find their authentic erotic languages, erotic blueprints. And finding the meeting points, especially if they're in relationship, as to how we can start to play in each 
language uh, where there is that commonplace between partners, because oftentimes opposites attract, right? So one partner is going to have a very different erotic language than another. Before that, I guess as a foundation piece to that, the Wheel of Consent, Betty Martin's work, the four quadrants mm-hmm. of giving and receiving touch, that's really important to open up our ability to know what our desire is, as well as to let in that physical experience of pleasure, to find safety in that, to open up our voice mm-hmm. in terms of our expression of what we want and what our boundaries are. So all of that has to do with the erotic um, of course, we get into some of the adventuring pieces as well as to what is it that we'd like to try or not? What are we in no way to? But the final piece then is the the physical. And that comes with more healthy relationship practices when it comes to our yoni, our vulva, our vagina, um, as well as a pleasant penetrative practice that may include dilating or not. And of course, also yoni dearmoring which I know is one of your specialties. This is such an amazing practice for releasing the emotional pent up energy that is literally physically Mm. stored in the fascia of our vagina Mm. and um, also releasing some of the the tight knots that are there on a physical level. And of course the two are Mm. quite the same. So we include trigger point release as part of the dilating practice. Mm. That's more or less it. I know that was a long one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, amazing. And uh, as with all of this stuff, like there isn't a magic bullet, quick fix, you know, solution. And that's that's something I'm having to constantly just sort of explain to people. Like, you know, you can't expect to have vaginismus for eight years and rock up and just have, you know, my magic finger sort that out for you. You know, like when I work with people with vaginismus, it's sort of understood from the get-go, if I can make it clear that, you know, this is a a journey and there's going to be multiple facets of, um, you know, processing different layers as part of that, you know, I keep wanting to say healing journey, but now I'm like, it's processing. Um, <laughs> no, I, to- I totally get why. Yeah, I've kind of got an interesting relationship with the word healing as well because I don't like to think of myself as a healer. Like I hate that like category mm. of like, you know, sexual uh, healers or whatever. Anyway, we're helping facilitate, yeah, some processing and integration. Um, and, yeah, there's often so many factors that have gone into why this person's now struggling with with this. So um, I like that your approach has this really beautiful kind of holistic, multi-pronged, you know, way of, of tackling it. And I imagine that there's also like what I like to do is kind of reframe vaginismus or painful sex as like your body's way of getting your attention. It's a cry for help. It's it's mm-hmm. sort of trying to let you know something isn't right because and that that's a real um, gift and you should be thanking your body for for drawing your attention to this so that you can do something about it because a lot of people wind up you know in my treatment space just feeling like their body is the enemy they're feeling ashamed or let down by their body for not doing what they want it to do or not being able to perform not being able to provide you know that for their partner um And they're just so frustrated and angry and um, embarrassed. And so, yeah, I I like to help people kind of 
reframe that because I think that's like one of the first steps to actually starting to work with your body, um, you know, is getting on the same team and, and not feeling like you're pitted against one another. I love that. Thank you for bringing that in. I felt such frustration and anger and resentment towards my body and my body was feeling the same thing towards me Mm. on some level, right? Because we are frustrated that the body is not listening to us and it's not doing what we want it to, but the body is frustrated that we're not listening to it and we're doing the opposite of what it wants us to. Part of some of the principles that I speak to when it comes to a, a penetrative practice is that if we lay down with the intention to dilate 10, 15 times over, but we actually do have the conversation with our vagina that day to nourish her, to ask her if she would like to be penetrated that day. And we start to learn how our body communicates with us through physical sensations. We start to understand which physical sensations mean yes, which mean no. And we actually listen to that no that our body is giving us a contraction of sorts, a sense of cold, like a sense of resistance on some level, we're going to be making a lot more progress with that that day's dilating practice than actually trying to insert something. And what that journey takes us into is taking back the responsibility of saying no with our voice and with our expression, rather than putting that responsibility on our pelvic floor muscles to do. Because they were saying no for us over and over and over again. And if we take that responsibility back and we do the same, Mm -hmm. it's like our vagina looks up at us and she says, huh, Katrin's listening to me. Okay, Mm -hmm. I don't have to say no for us because she's doing that with her voice. And that creates the space for the yeses to start to bubble up. That's how sexual desire comes back online. That's how curiosity is created because curiosity can only live on top of safety. And uh, hence we go for safety first and then curiosity. Totally. I'm wondering like when you're talking about a penetration practice, is there there a difference or is there um, benefit in – sort of starting this with yourself in a self-pleasure penetrative practice before you try to attempt it with a partner? Do you find that some people, because I, I get clients that are like, when I'm alone, I can totally get a finger inside. I can use tampons now, blah, blah, blah. But then that that sort of next step is being able to do that with a partner and finding the like safety um, to really surrender and I guess um, – allow their nervous system to to co-regulate with another human. It's like that's the really tricky thing for people. So what do you do in that case where people are, are at the point where they can actually have penetration on their own um, and they've got a bit of a practice going, it's all going well, but then when they're with a dick, it just feels like they're straight back to square one. Mm-hmm. That's such an amazing question and this happens so often. What I see... Uh, very clearly as evidence of this is that oftentimes someone might get to the second last or the last dilator and things had been going super well and all of a sudden they're about to let's say use the last dilator or use a dildo before they transition to PIV sex or they're about to you know they are trying to transition to PIV sex and the brick wall comes up again Hmm. and that element of the new human, right, is another layer Mm. of surrender. It's another layer of something we cannot control. 
and sense and hence it's asking us to practice that safety and surrender on a whole new level. That's why it's so difficult. Aside from that, there's also a couple of psychological pieces as to why we have resistance to moving to the next stage. Sometimes there is such a comfort in remaining the woman who experiences vaginismus because of all of the other potentially scary pieces on the other side of things. Mm-hmm. That that's one of the reasons that we have a bit of stagnation in this stage. On the other hand, there might be so some fears on what waits for us on the other side, like needing to decide when we're going to get pregnant, if that's something that we desire, uh, that this is also one of the factors that kind of pings up to our awareness to make the body go back to what seems like square one. So we actually have to address each one of these individual pieces. But when it comes to the mechanics of it, I really like introducing one little facet at a time. That might mean moving down a size or two of what we're used to and having our partner be part of the penetrative experience where he or she are holding the dilator. Mm. In fact, that may start with the fact that we're dilating on our own in our bedroom, but we actually have asked our partner to be in the next room and we know that they're in the next room and we're practicing dilating with their close by presence After that, we might invite them into the same room, but sitting in the corner on a chair and like reading a book, can we create the safety with going through our penetrative practice with them reading a book? Then they're invited to look at us and observe us. Then they're invited to sit beside us and maybe touch us on the shoulder or on the leg. And slowly but surely, we infuse them into each next part so that we get into the skill set of communicating with them as to how fast to go when to slow down, when to change angles or positions, breathing with them. I feel like this is a really effective approach from what I've seen to really introducing one new element at a time. And at the end, when our partner is the one inserting the largest dilator, we can more easily switch that tool out for their body because we're now used Mm. to everything else that's part of that, that game. Yeah, that's amazing. That's such a great, yeah, that's such great advice. It's just very, very incrementally, yeah, introducing this, this unknown variable that we can't control in little, little micro doses until it feels safer and safer and more and more normal and your nervous system's used to that. And that's really cool. And I think like something that I was, that, that sparked was, you know, for people that aren't in relationships that don't have this person who's, you know, who they're comfortable with, who's, you know, loving and hopefully a safe space. Um, I have had people just be really frustrated that they can't kind of have sex with a new person or go and have a one night stand or have casual sex. And I'm kind of like, my, my like stance on that is, you know, it's, almost a bit of a gift that your body's preventing you from having sex that just doesn't feel super comfortable and safe because personally like there's no way my nervous system can feel relaxed enough and comfortable enough on a one night stand or with a brand new person it's it's almost like you know if you're not being a really kind of intentional gatekeeper for your body for your yoni it's it's doing it for you. And so that's something to look at as well is like what what kind of sex am I trying to have and is it even 
you know, is it even beneficial for me? Like, or is it just going to be re-traumatizing me and my nervous system because there isn't that safety or comfortability and it isn't super honoring and respectful, which, you know, a lot of casual sex is not. Um, and it kind of weeds out the dickheads, you know, it means that by the time you actually are able to have P and V, you know, sex, it's probably because you're with someone that's really lovely, understanding, patient, compassionate, and you feel safe with them and they're sticking around, you know, um, they're invested in helping you work through this. And there's something beautiful about that. Um, I mean, sorry, you don't get to have a hoe phase, but like, I mean, I don't really, I don't think it's necessary anyway, (laughs) other than to figure out what you don't want. Um, So is the, is the idea behind the dilators, cause it, they're pretty contentious. Like when I have looked into vaginismus, um, solutions in the past, there's been some pretty opinionated, um, arguments against dilators, even just the, 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 uh, the language, like they're supposed to stretch, you know, like that sounds violent. That sounds like, ooh. Um, and ideally, like, you know, it's like those muscles all know how to, um, kind of soften and, and stuff. It's not like you need to stretch them. It's more getting the body used to something being inside without pain so that it's like this muscle memory of, oh, I know that that's possible to have something that large inside me without it hurting. And therefore that's like rewriting, you know, that pain cycle or that expectation of your body, which will then prevent it feeling the need to brace. Um, is that kind of the, idea behind it less about like trying to like um you know teach your muscles to stretch and more about uh reassuring your body and your nervous system that this is possible to achieve without pain excuse the interruption my loves but i'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five star ratings for the potty because as i'm sure you've noticed by now it's pretty fab and the more people who get to hear it the more people it can help Reviews and ratings help me curry favour with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't mazz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. (laughs) So you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway, oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh, my God. I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem and I'll let you get back to the episode now. Beautifully said, that is the main idea. And Mm. the stretching component, I feel like was one of the things that really scared me at the time. And I didn't quite know how 
I was given the very same thing that had caused me fear. And I was told to use that to overcome my fear. Let's say you have a fear of snakes, right? If someone was to give you a whole aquarium of snakes and said, just look at these, just play with these every day and you'll be better. Like, will that really help? I don't think so. There's some sort of benefit of being exposed to them. Just like I invite people to have a dilator, the first dilator, visually in their space. So they're tactilely, you know, mm. accustomed to it, maybe using it for like a, a hair tie holder in their bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> have it literally just be part of the normalcy of life. But the dilator at the end of the day is going to serve exactly as that tick box of, oh, everything else that I've done so mm. far seems to be working. And I didn't need to go all the way into PIV sex to take yeah. that big of a leap of faith to prove that to myself. So if we're mm. not being invited to do belly breathing exercises, reverse Kegel exercises, stretching and uh, massage with a foam roller, a trigger uh, ball like a foam ball or partner massage or if we're not invited to do hip tension release or jaw relaxation and we're just given this proverbial snake to practice with hmm. absolutely not that is not going to stretch my muscles it's just going to work against muscles that are not flexible or capable of relaxing just yet and we don't yep. want that yeah totally totally and that's yeah that's it's something really interesting that I've noticed working with clients with vaginismus is, you know, they might not be able to get even a pinky finger in for years, but then somehow in a yoni mapping session where I, I do internal pelvic release work inside the vagina, I'm massaging the pelvic floor muscles. I, every single client I've ever had with vaginismus, we've been like, okay, there's, there's a chance we might not even get to the penetration. That's totally okay. But we've, always managed to get to penetrative massage like every single time and they've had zero pain and it's because we've kind of done all of these things in the lead up we've created safety and rapport you know there's no pressure or expectation at all and therefore they wind up feeling really relaxed and safe and you know regulated in the space that I'm kind of helping create and um and I can do very very deep internal pelvic massage and the the mm -hmm. sort of act of massaging around the walls and and this sort of entire landscape inside the pelvic ball which as you know it's not just a penis shaped tube or a dilator shaped tube um and it's not just about that ring of you know muscles right at the entrance like once you're inside the vagina it's this very large space where you can massage you know everything from um, on the front anterior wall, you know, this sort of urethral sponge G-spot area, the cervix right up the top, the back, I can, I can massage the tailbone and all of these sort of insertion points towards the sacrum and all around the walls. And so they're feeling this experience of, um, massive space in there, like this, this opening experience of like massage and kind of, yeah, it, it must just be so interesting. I mean, they, they're kind of always like, whoa, I had no idea there was so much space in there and that there was all of these different areas that I've never felt before um, and that can be touched and pushed on and massaged quite firmly 
to release tension, to bring circulation to the area um, without pain. And so it's almost like that sort of gives them a point of reference. Um, it helps create new neural pathways and a new association with penetration and touch in that area um, that I, I like to think, you know, helps them then, you know, just kind of adds, it adds um, some ammunition to the other side of the argument that's going on in their body of like penetration equals pain we need to contract and there's all of this evidence leading like like supporting that thus far and then once we start working and and giving them other input that contradicts Mm -hmm. that it's really helpful to kind of rewrite the script um and change those those associations with penetration yeah having that experience under our belts something that is completely out of the cycle of pain and in my Mm -hmm. opinion, is actually contributing to what I like to call the cycle of confidence is what helps pull us out of the slippery slope of the cycle of pain. Because now we have a belief that it's possible. We have learned more about our body. We've mapped areas within Mm -hmm. that we had never had never been touched either. Yeah. And now it's like, huh, that actually wasn't too bad. And I could do it again, naturally, because I did it once. This is one of the reasons why someone who may be experiencing secondary vaginismus, meaning they have had pleasurable penetrative sex experiences before, and then they uh, had Mm -hmm. the wall come up or the pain be present in on some level, it's easier for them to anchor into the knowing that it was possible before. And therefore they can move through this pain to overcome it. When we don't have that evidence, it's kind of like you're, moving in darkness and you just can't possibly imagine how pleasure can be any part of this equation and so isolating because all you hear about sex is like how fucking great it is and you're seeing these scenes in movies where people are having orgasms and you know and how like alienating that must be of just never having a point of reference or any kind of pleasurable association with it and just being like what like i mean talk about feeling fucking broken um yeah which is just so damaging from the get-go so what like when someone's had pleasurable penetrative experiences and then the wall comes up and they start experiencing vaginismus and pain and get stuck in that cycle is that usually from some sort of traumatic event do you find it could be yeah it could be a less than nourishing sexual experience with a partner or with themselves for some reason Uh, It could also be a physical trauma of sorts, like giving Mm -hmm. birth is one, right? We go through a lot of pain and that kind of experience that I can't speak from experience about, but, you know, I could only imagine. Um, In my childhood, I actually had an event where I fell on a bike between my legs. And this was another one of the contributing factors, right? Just an Mm -hmm. example of physical trauma that can happen at any point in life. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a really intense stinging sensation when I was trying to go pee after that as the area was healing. And on top of that, I was told not to share with my grandma what had happened because it was her birthday and let's not ruin the mood. So there's just like psychological components to the physical components. And we, we sweep that under the rug. And Mm -hmm. I like to say, you know, when we have no sex education, what that really is representative of is that we have never put words to a part of our experience in our body. We haven't given it language. We've never talked about our vulva, our vagina, our eroticism. And what one of my mentors shared 
in the past was that language creates reality. Words cast spells. That's why it's called spelling. So if language creates our reality and we have no language about a particular piece of our lives, it is not part of our reality. It doesn't exist. And we completely dissociate from this almost black hole of what exists between our legs. And therefore, we never interact with that part of ourselves. So it's Mm. so important to put language to this in the way that we raise our kids, in the way that our education system is structured, in the way that we speak about it with girlfriends, which was a conversation I tried to run away from every single time, right? But it it does come down to speaking about these topics that are taboo in our society. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. I'm very passionate about that. Um, Just in the interest of time, though, I'm going to try not to go off on like the three tangents that just popped up while you were speaking. (laughs) I think I'll have to get you back on. Um, I'd love to chat a little bit about, I guess, I guess something that I've heard that can come up is like a partner not really understanding or not believing you or thinking it's an excuse not to have sex with them or thinking maybe that it's something that they're doing wrong and taking it personally, which then of course just exacerbates the situation because we're feeling like, you know, we want to reassure them and we're feeling guilty that they feel like that. But then we're also trying to fucking deal with the fact that like we're the one struggling with this, you know, really, really painful um, thing going on in our bodies and and um, our own guilt about not providing that. So how do we kind of help a partner understand what it's about? Like, are there tips that you might have or, an ad- or, or a bit of advice for a partner of someone who is struggling with vaginismus? Like, you know, what are your kind of go-tos in this department when, when someone's got a partner? That's such a huge topic and we don't tap into it enough. And it really is a big contributing factor in our relational dynamics. Um, I have interviewed a few male partners, including a partner of mine in the past. And some of those interviews give an inside look into what is going on inside the mind of a partner uh, throughout the vaginismus experience. So some of those interviews are in my sexually liberated work for vaginismus sisters Um, but the reality is that our partners take away a really huge interpretation about this from the fact that we experience pain. And what they take away is that they were the cause of our problem. Their body part was the source of pain, the weapon that led us to go into such deep darkness around our sexuality and around our connection. Um, I remember avoiding holding my partner's hand, uh, kissing my partner, being intimate in other ways, because I was dreading where that was leading. Totally. I was dreading that so much that I didn't want to invite that momentum uh, to continue into something that I wasn't ready for, or I knew that I would cry about or be really frustrated with. So what that leaves our partners thinking sometimes is, you know, I'm not wanted, I'm not trusted, and I cannot provide pleasure. Sometimes, aside from some of those, you know, painful self-image parts that come out of that for a partner, uh, they may also start to shut down their own erotic desire. Because, of course, that is what 
is potentially helpful for us, right? If they don't want sex, then we're in the safety zone. And therefore, they're going to give us that space for us to work on ourselves and hopefully work together in partnership. This in itself becomes super frustrating also for the vaginismus sister. Why? Because we already have this insecurity that we're not good enough as a girlfriend, as a wife, erotically and otherwise. We now observe our partner not wanting us and not initiating sex, even though a part of us doesn't want them to initiate. There's a big part of us that also wants them to initiate, right? Mm -hmm. We want to be wanted. So that is just another vicious cycle between both partners not feeling desired, wanted, and ultimately a disconnection gets formed. Mm. Oh my God. Yeah. So tricky. So tricky. So how, like, I guess, oh, there's so many things. There's so many things. But in the interest of time, like, is there any kind of like, how do we wrap a bow on this? How do, what do we want to send people away with? Um, whether it's a partner or someone who is actually, um, experiencing vaginismus themselves, like, what would you say would be, um, the first step? Like, is it a book? Is it a course? Is it working with you? Is it, I mean, cause obviously that's sort of not accessible to everyone. Um, yeah. What advice would you have or what first steps would you point people towards? Hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte, because I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. (laughs) You can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned, And I also offer one-on-one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. Um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. One thing I'm really excited about is something I'm in the process of creating, which is a community for the partners of Vaginismus Sisters. I feel like the actual conversation between them is going to open up so many cans of worms too, but you know, some of that needs to come out in order to be turned into really supportive, nourishing experiences for each couple. But they definitely, I see it so often, there's such a desire to be involved in the journey, to be able to be there in the most supportive way possible. And there is the want to grow into the the supportive partner who truly understands. Mm -hmm. In those cases, thankfully, there are resources and like this upcoming community, as well as uh, anything online that could be helpful for them to get the intellectual understanding of vaginismus. But more than that is to inspire vulnerability 
in their partners. Of mm. course, each partner is responsible for this, but vulnerability inspires vulnerability. Totally. One person not feeling quite safe to share the pain that is on their heart is going to lead to another person also closing their heart a little bit and being in silence mm. about what they're going through. So we need to make sure that we create a ritual in our relationships to have that be such a welcoming space for the emotional expression that might happen from either side, as well as the skill and capacity for that emotional expression to be held in a safe container by the other partner, rather than triggering ourselves into disconnection, right? So it takes both partners to do the personal development work, the personal growth work, to actually be able to hold presence, stillness, right? That's a lot of the masculine energetic, the alpha energetic of you are safe here, no matter what. And then the feminine gets to express in her colleague chaos sometimes, right? Of that emotion, of course, also not intentionally trying to hurt the partner, but being able to be true and authentic to what is wanting to come through. Mm. If we learn to do that, if we learn to create spaces of vulnerability in a safe way, that will shift so much about how we can feel safe to be vulnerable in the bedroom as well. Totally. Yeah. That's such good advice. I'm yeah, often saying like, you know, lead by example, show your vulnerability in order to give the other person in the partnership permission to be equally vulnerable. Like if you open up that space, chances are, hopefully your partner will answer that with their own you know, their own vulnerability and will feel a lot more able to trust you with that because you've, you know, you've created the safety and in, in sort of showing, showing your cards and going to that next level of depth um, and honesty and authenticity and rawness. So, you know, and it is, it's risky, it's vulnerable, but hopefully, you know, you're with a partner that 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 is safe to do that um and if you're if you are someone who's partnered with someone with vaginismus like that's your homework is see how vulnerable you can get with them to create that safety and set the bar at a whole new sort of level of of um you know authenticity because that will just drop you into a a new layer of connection um and safety with one another and I mean just like regardless of vaginismus being present or not like that's a really beautiful thing to do in any relationship it it fosters more intimacy and way better sex like especially like female pleasure you know that vulnerability piece and that safety piece so her nervous system can feel totally at ease around you is gonna enable like way 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 more pleasure and just way better sex and and satisfaction in that area of her life and yeah so I'm all about more and more and more vulnerability in a safe way in the relationship um and you've also got a couple of free courses I'm going to put them in the show notes but um Katrin's inviting you into her there's two free courses one's called putting vaginismus in the past um and then there's also a three-day safety in love masterclass. and I'll put those in the show notes they're both free which is incredible um and I guess that would be like a really nice entry point would you say for people that are not sure where to start yeah, it would. I think they'll really enjoy the conversations in there. Safety and love cool. is very much around the 
relationship dynamics, our relationship to pleasure, our relationship to ourself as it relates to vaginismus. And putting vaginismus in the past is uh, more detail as to the three pillars and how to move through that cool. sexual liberation. Cool. Awesome. Amazing. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much, my love. This has been an amazing chat. I think people will have gotten a lot out of this. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. And your facilitation mm-hmm. was beautiful. Our conversation flowed oh, so thanks. So thank you. Ah, <laughs> thanks so much. I try, I try. Uh, all right, everyone. See you later. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT, and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.